Father, thank you for Jesus, the one through whose death and resurrection you give us the strength and the guidance to overcome anything in our lives. So thank you that through our Lord Jesus, you have adopted us into your family. And we are not who the world says we are or who the culture says we are. We are not even who we think we are, and we are certainly not who the lies of the devil would want us to believe we are. Instead, we are who you say we are. And you tell us in your word that when we believe in your son, we are your children. And I am grateful for that. And as your children, Lord, this morning, we, we just want to come before you, our Father, our Abba. We want to hear your voice. We want to know your grace and presence surrounds each of us. And so I pray as we seek you in your word that your spirit would be our guide and our teacher and that your voice would be the voice that we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we looked at the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. With that, we saw John walking in his God-given purpose. We saw the message of repentance that he preached. And we also talked about the fruit of repentance, which is God-empowered change in our lives. Today, we're going to continue with John's ministry as he explains that he is not the Christ or the Messiah, and he points the people once again to Jesus. I love John's ministry because it's such a great example for us. If you go and read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which I highly encourage you to do, one of the things that that chapter tells us is that we are ambassadors for Christ. I mentioned this last week. As ambassadors for Christ, the Bible tells us that God is pleading with the world around us through us. An ambassador is sent to represent the one who sent him or her. We send ambassadors to foreign countries to represent our nation. And those countries send ambassadors here, and that ambassador in that foreign nation represents that country that they're from to the nation they are in. We are ambassadors for a different kingdom. We are ambassadors for a kingdom that is not of this world. We are ambassadors for a kingdom that exists within and through us as followers of Christ. And a kingdom that's coming. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Doesn't change that we are ambassadors. Right? When we go out into the world, there's a lot of things we may represent. Maybe we represent our family, or we represent our business, or whatever it might be. I have a great desire, which is completely off topic, to become an ambassador for U.S. Pickleball. <laughs> completely separate goal altogether. The biggest reason I want to do it is discounts on paddles. But, you know, just, like I said, completely separate. But the point is, as ambassadors, 
We don't represent ourselves. We represent him. And this is what we will continue to see John doing in his ministry today. With that, we should read the Bible and dive in. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, and remember, the word Christ and the word Messiah are basically the same word. They simply mean anointed. John answered, saying to all, verse 16, I indeed baptize you with water. But one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison. As we go back to verse 15, the people were in expectation, and they reasoned in their hearts about John whether or not he was the Messiah. I love that they were in expectation. Or the word can also mean anticipation. And the reason that that's so important for us is because they were in this state because of the multitude of prophecies that they had in the Old Testament that pointed to the coming of their Messiah. Therefore, they were trying to figure out whether or not John was him. Now, we know, and we're not going to go through them all today because we need to go home eventually, uh, that Jesus, at his first advent, fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies concerning himself. We know at his second coming, he's got about 300 more to fulfill. And the reason that the first 300 are so important is because if he fulfilled all of those, well, he's going to fulfill all the ones that are left. And that is a glorious promise. But I, and this was not on purpose until I got to the end of it, we're just going to look at seven of the 300 and change prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And we're going to look at them rather quickly. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses prophesied, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. And the Jews always accepted that prophecy as being one that referred to the Messiah. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're not going to read the whole chapter, there God promises David that his throne will be established forever and that one of his descendants, it'll be through one of his descendants that he will build David a house. David accepted that as a prophecy of the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 40, I lost my iPad. That's very unhelpful. Hello. Right? It's like a teacher who loses their teacher's edition. I'm going to be stuck without my notes. There we go. In Isaiah chapter 40, the promise of the world seeing God's salvation, the way which would be prepared 
right? John prepared the way for Jesus' first coming, coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. We've talked about that. Elijah himself will return as the predecessor for Jesus' second coming. We, we have lots of fun talking about that. Who's going to return with him? He's one of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 12, 11, 12. Book of Revelation. Read the whole thing. You'll find it. Um, but he's one of the two witnesses. Elijah is one of the two witnesses. And we like to talk about, well, who's the other one? Well, some people argue that it'll be Moses because of the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. That's the one I lean towards. Some say that it will be uh, Enoch because he didn't die. He was caught up. Some say that it will be Zerubbabel because of prophecies in the book of Zechariah. I lean towards Moses. That's another discussion. Daniel 9, 24 through 27, the prediction of when the Messiah would present himself to the nation of Israel as their Messiah predicted to the day. And if you've never heard that study, you can go to our YouTube page, Beware the Caffeinated Pastor, look up the Daniel study and the one specifically on those verses. In my humble opinion, the greatest prophecy in all of scripture. And if you go listen to that study, you'll know why I think that. In Micah chapter 5, we have the prediction of the Messiah's birthplace in Bethlehem. In Zechariah 9.9, we read, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. What's really fun is the prophecy of Jesus coming in on a donkey in Zechariah 9.9. When he fulfills that prophecy... That exact moment is what's predicted in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Prophecy is so much fun. And then Malachi chapter 4 is another prediction of the coming Messiah and a prediction of the preceding ministry of Elijah, which, as we already mentioned, was fulfilled in John the Baptist for Jesus' first coming and will be fulfilled uh, in Elijah for his second. This is seven verses. Seven out of 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. 300 plus. I want to say the number is actually 310. Don't quote me on that. They were in expectation. They should have been. The word of God told them over and over and over again that their Messiah was coming. Now, for us, what does the word of God tell us? The word of God tells us over and over and over that he's coming back. So we should live in the same expectation. The main reason that we should live in expectation is because many of the Jewish people were looking for their Messiah. And when he showed up, they missed it or they rejected it. They missed it. Jesus actually said that you missed your day of visitation. They missed it. Jesus told us he is coming back again. In John 14, 1 through 4, part of the last song we sang, in my father's house there are many mansions. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you. Behold, I go and prepare a place for you so I can come back for you. That where I am, 
you will be with me also. This is the promise of Scripture. And there's multiple promises that go along with that, that uh, what's going to be in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, according to 1 Corinthians 15, that we are going to be caught up to meet him in the air, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that it's going to come at a moment, at a day, an hour that nobody knows, which you can read about in Mark 13 and Matthew 24. You can find all these places. So the reality is we don't know when he's coming back. What we do know is that he's coming back. And we are told over and over and over again to be ready for it. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, there's a beautiful Greek word, maranatha. I love this word. It simply means, oh Lord, come. And that's what we are looking for. Because he's coming. How will we be ready? If you want a little more homework besides first or second Corinthians chapter five, go read Matthew twenty-five. Three parables in that passage that tell us how to be ready. And the primary way that we will be ready for Jesus' return is by having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Believing in his death and resurrection, knowing that as the Son of God who lived a sinless life, that what he did was all we need in order to be saved. When we know that, when we believe it, when we place our faith in him, we were talking about it in Sunday school this morning. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love that. It's not whoever calls on the name of the Lord and attends a specific church. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord and dresses in a certain way. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord and has a specific skin color. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord and, 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 no. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will So simple, so beautiful, so profound. Once we're saved, then we look forward to our Savior coming back to get us. Titus 2, 11 through 15 says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Doesn't mean that everybody gets saved, just that it's available to everybody. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, and let no one despise you. So as you continue to read Matthew 25, we don't do good works to be saved, but because we are saved, good works will show up. And that can only really happen in our lives as we are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Which leads us to verses 16 and 17. Where we read, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water. But one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand 
and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We're going to be right here for a little bit. John responded to their inquiry with a beautiful statement that essentially has three parts. First, John was baptizing with water. We talked about his baptism last week. It was a baptism of repentance. And we talked last week about how baptism was not foreign to the Jewish people. Uh, they would often baptize Gentiles who wanted to become Jews, if they actually let them get that far. But they would baptize them as a symbol of them washing off their Gentileness, washing away their sins, and then identifying themselves with the Jewish people. It's very similar for us, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Second, there was another coming, right? John said, yep, I'm here and I'm doing this, but there's someone else, right? And the one who's coming, Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. I often wear slip-ons, so that makes it so much easier. I can just kick my shoes off. But back then, right, we picture sandals. Anybody own Birkenstocks, the greatest shoe ever made? Uh, just me and my wife? You guys need Birkenstocks. <laughs> Go, uh, Nancy and Galen, their kids own a store downtown, Treads and Threads. Chris and Kelly, if you're listening, discount. Um, treads and Threads, and I, they sell they Birkenstocks right there. Um, but back then, their, their sandals worked very, very differently, right? They didn't just slip on a pair of sandals. The, the straps would be wrapped around their foot and tied. Um, and John's saying, when he comes, I'm not worthy to take off his shoe. The lowest servant in the house would take off their master's shoe and wash their feet. Which is why John 13 becomes even a more beautiful picture when Jesus did that for his disciples. In John chapter 3, verse 30, when John's disciples were complaining, they were going, John, 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 everyone's going after this Jesus guy. John goes, good. He must increase. And I must decrease. John chapter 3, verse 30. And he tells them that when Jesus comes, he would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and fire. We're going to come back to that. Third, Jesus' ministry would involve separating the wheat from the chaff. In other words, there would be an aspect of judgment to his ministry. That's what that means. Where he would take the wheat, those who truly know him, those who are truly his, and he would gather them, and he would take those who are chaff, those who don't know him, and cast them into the fire, which, of course, is a picture of eternal judgment. Oh, I know, talking about eternal judgment's no fun for people, but it's coming. For those who don't know Jesus, it is coming. I want to be the wheat that's gathered into the barn. I do not want to be the chaff. And what I really don't want is for anybody to think they're one when they're really the other. Because there will come that day, and I bring this up a lot because I think personally it's the scariest sentence in all of Scripture. There will come that day when people will say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not clothe the poor in your name? Didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because good works are good. We should do good works. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, guided by the word of God, we should. But they mean nothing if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
That's what matters. So, with that being said, he actually talked about two baptisms in this passage. Baptism, John's baptism, which is a baptism of water, and Jesus' baptism, a baptism of fire, which is in reference to the Holy Spirit. So I thought it would be good exercise for us to take a moment and talk about the three baptisms we see in Scripture that relate to us as followers of Christ. Number one, we are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. That is the essential baptism. Without that baptism, you are not going to heaven. This baptism usually doesn't have outward signs, though it can. This baptism may not come with, you know, amazing, warm, fuzzy, tingly feelings running up and down your body, though it can. What this baptism is, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and Galatians 3, 26, and 27, is that when we believe in Jesus Christ, we place our faith in him, turning from our sins, and turning towards him, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of us. And at that very moment, we are adopted into the family of God, we are forgiven, we are given a new heart of flesh, the old heart of stone has been torn out, and we now belong to him. Baptism into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Now the second baptism, water baptism, similar to John's, Water baptism is a public demonstration of our faith in Christ. It's an outward example of the inward reality of our identification with Jesus' death and resurrection. I'll say that again. It's an outward example of the inward reality of our identification with Jesus' death and resurrection. When we are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit, the first one we talked about, at that moment we say yes I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Galatians 2.20. That's that moment. That's what happens. And uh, we're commanded, and it's a great idea, that once that inward reality takes place, we let somebody dunk us in water, as a public declaration of our faith. 1 Peter 3.21 and Romans 6.4 talk about that. Now the question that often arises, do you have to be baptized in water to be saved? No! You don't. Best example of that in scripture is the thief on the cross. I love, I love making that argument. I've had that argument with a few people where, where they'll say, oh, you have to be baptized to be saved. And I'll go, what about the thief on the cross? Uh, did Jesus get off the cross along with him, dunk him in water, and they jumped back up there to make sure that guy could go to heaven? No. What did he say? Lord, remember me when, I, when you come into your kingdom. Was there a prayer? Was there scripture memorized? Did he go through some sort of catechism? Did he go through some kind of new members class? Did he get baptized in water? Did he wear the right clothes, put on the right hat? No. Lord, remember me. Jesus said, you got it. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. However, I think water baptism is good for us. Right? It's a good way for us to make a public declaration of faith. And if you've never done it, 
we have a tub back there that we can fill up with ice cold water and well back well, okay they told us the heater was fixed we just haven't tried it but if you're interested let me know I love to baptize people it's fun now the third baptism we see in scripture and this is when we are baptized in by or with the Holy Spirit people refer to it in different ways this is the baptism where we become empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life of holiness and service before God. This is the promise Jesus gave us in Acts 1.8, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses to Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the... No, I got that backwards. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. In John 7... 37 through 39, this is what he talked about, that we would be baptized with the Holy Spirit and out of us would flow torrents of living water. That speaks of the Holy Spirit filling us to overflowing so that it splashes essentially on the people around us. Now, we're now going to take just a moment. I said that about the last section too. Now we're going to take another really long moment and we're going to talk about our relationship with the Holy Spirit because this is vital for us. There are three phases to our relationship with the Holy Spirit, which do correspond to two of the baptisms we just talked about. That's why I wanted to bring it up. Number one, all three of these are denoted by a different word in Greek. I'll give you the word. I'll give you the passage. That can, you can add that. You guys have a lot of homework this week. What are we? Second Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, read 24 too, because they go together. Um, it's the Olivet Discourse. And, and now you can look up these scriptures. Read John 14 and 16. Um, number one, he comes alongside us to be with us and lead us to Christ. The Greek word there is para. It's actually the same word in Spanish uh, for with. Before you know Jesus, before you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, before you believe and give your life to Christ and receive the offer of salvation that he gives to anybody who will listen and receive it and call on his name, before you do that, the Holy Spirit is coming alongside of you. The Holy Spirit is flicking the side of your ear, smacking you upside the back of the head, doing whatever he can do to get your attention so that you will look and listen to what God is offering. I remember, right, if you go to Acts chapter 9, when Paul gets knocked off his horse, they always say he got knocked off his horse. We don't know if that actually happened. But he did get knocked down. And Jesus said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. The goads being talked about there is the Holy Spirit coming alongside Paul going, you know this is true. You know you need to listen. You know that you need Jesus. You know this. Why are you resisting? Why are you resisting? He does that for people today. Because you see, you and I, we can't save anybody. We can share the gospel. We can pray with people. We can pray for people. We can love people. We can serve people. But we can't save them. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So he comes alongside. Now, when that person responds to the gospel, when we receive Jesus as Savior, then the Holy Spirit dwells in us. The Greek word is en, en. 
And it's the very presence and power of God in us at all times. The, the Spirit revealing Christ to us, in us, and through us, and teaching us all things. This is John 14, 16 through 17 and verse 23. This is the first baptism we talked about when we are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's what happens right there. We go from the Holy Spirit being alongside of us, leading us to Christ, convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and a host of other things. And at the moment we say, I believe, I call on the name of the Lord Jesus to save me, then the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. And from that moment forward, we then live quorum Deo. It's a beautiful phrase. It's a Latin phrase that actually comes from the Hebrew in Psalm chapter 16. No, I said it. No chapters. In Psalm 16. Psalm doesn't have chapters. But in Psalm 16, that was a discussion in Sunday school. Sorry. But in Psalm 16, um, there's this beautiful verse that talks about living before the face of God. And that's what quorum Deo means. It means to live before the face of God. We constantly live before the face of God because God lives inside of us. Now, that does not make you and I God. Get that idea in case you were thinking, oh, really, that's what? No, no. But the Holy Spirit, God himself, dwells inside of us. We are always in his presence. We always have access to his power. According to Hebrews 2, we, or 4, it's in Hebrew, we always have access to his throne of grace because he's always with us. Oh, how beautiful is that? The third part of our relationship with the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit comes upon us. The word in Greek is epi, E-P-I, and he comes upon us to empower us for life and service to God through Christ, and that is that verse in Acts 1-8 that we referenced earlier. Now, there's a whole lot of other arguments. Some people say that being baptized into the body of Christ and then being empowered by the Holy Spirit have to happen at the same time. And there are some who say that being baptized into the body of Christ and then being filled with the Holy Spirit are separate occasions. Which one is correct? They both are. Read the Bible. It happens both ways throughout Scripture. When, when, um, the, when the apostles believed in Jesus Christ, they saw him ascend. Ten days later, they were filled with the Holy Spirit in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. When Peter takes the Gospels to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, he's preaching the gospel to the centurion and all the people he gathered in his house. While he was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell and they spoke with new tongues. Peter didn't tell them about the Holy Spirit. Peter didn't offer to lay hands on them and pray for them. Peter didn't lead them in a sinner's prayer. But that moment came where their heart was changed by the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Just beautiful. So it can happen both ways. Don't let anybody tell you any differently. And the last one, where we can be empowered for life and service, that happens repeatedly. Ephesians 5.18 tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It actually says, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Greek, the phrase is so cool because it's really bad English. It says, we are to be being filled. We are to continuously and repeatedly be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
It can be daily. It can be moment by moment. If you're anything like me, you need it all the time. I don't like getting out of bed without that happening. I ask for it almost every day, sometimes every day. But almost every day, I'm like, Lord, fill me, lead me, guide me by your Holy Spirit. I can't do it on my own. I just can't. This is all possible through a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. We could spend a lot more time looking into the ordinance of baptism. We could spend a whole lot more time looking into the ministry, work, and person of the Holy Spirit. But I think this is what we have time for today. If you want to get into this further, please let me know. They are both really fun topics for us as believers to dive into. Baptism, i got to explain. Baptism is a fun topic to dive into. I put it in my notes because it made me laugh. I tell you guys all the time, I don't care if you laugh at my jokes. They make me laugh. That's all that matters. Um, And as we have discussed John's humility in the past, and we're going to spend a lot more time talking about the winnowing fan and the wheat and chaff, we're going to move on to the last couple verses and towards our closing. Verse 18. With many other exhortations he preached to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, he shut John up in prison. So we basically reach the end of John's ministry of baptism and the end of John's ministry of public preaching. At this point, from here on out, he's in prison. Doesn't end his ministry. If you go to the book of Matthew, chapter 14, just, just read the book of Matthew. That's part now your whole your homework. But if you go back to the book of Matthew, chapter 14, uh, you will see that Herod loved listening to John. He had multiple conversations with him. Herod repeatedly called John to have discussions with him, and then he'd send him back to prison. The only reason he arrested him was to make his, his, well, his wife happy. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Um, and so his ministry didn't end. His public ministry ended. He was no longer preaching to the, the, to the crowds. He was no longer baptizing people because uh, he was in prison. So it says, with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. The word exhortation here is parakaleo in Greek. It's the same root word para or para that we looked at earlier. It means to call near, invite, invoke, beseech, or pray. Essentially, John did not stop evangelizing because the word for preaching here is euangelizo. Okay, that's an easier sentence. I have to practice these things. When I say them badly, I didn't practice. Euangelizo, though, means to evangelize. And he was preaching to the people that repentance from sin and Jesus' soon arrival. And that didn't stop even after he was arrested. I love that. Where changed, but what he was called to do, he didn't stop doing. And then he was arrested. So here's the situation. This is one of those moments in the Bible that, that, that justifies a big ew. Ew. Herod Philip married a woman named 
Herodias. Remember, we talked about the various sons of Herod, including Herod Antipas and Herod Philip. That's the two we're talking about now. So we have Herod Antipas. He's the one who arrested John and threw him in prison. And we have Herod Philip. Philip married Herodias, which this is the first part of the you. Her name, Herodias, means she was related to Philip and Antipas in some way. We don't know how. Hopefully, like third or fourth cousin. Possibly brother and sister. Possibly. Somehow, they were related. Big ew. Um, Herod Philip had a child with Herodias. We know about this in Matthew chapter 14. So his daughter, Philip's daughter, was Herod Antipas' niece. If you go read Matthew chapter 14, it's in Matthew chapter 14 that this daughter, who is not actually named in Scripture, basically performs a sexualized dance for her uncle, Herod Antipas, on his birthday, where he promises to give her up to half his kingdom and she asks, at her mother's request, Herodias' request, the head of John the Baptist. This was his niece. Ew, right? Yeah, keep, keep saying it. Big ew moment. Somehow, Herod Antipas struck up a relationship with Herodias. She divorced Philip and married Antipas. And John said, dude, you can't do that. That's what it says in the Greek, not that. Right? But he said, you can't do that. This is wrong. You are committing adultery. You're causing her to commit adultery. You are dishonoring your brother. You are dishonoring God. Now, Herod Antipas kind of took it. But Herodias got angry. And she told her husband, you're going to throw him in jail. Now, Herod refused to kill him because he feared the people until his niece slash stepdaughter essentially performed a strip tease for him and his friends. And at his wife's request, he murdered John. Now, this was only a few of the things that John rebuked him for. Why? Ew. Ew. Oh. That ain't right, Bobby. How does this apply to us? That was a question I often ask myself. Okay, we get this, right? We have a nice history lesson. We spent time looking at some Greek words and going to all this. But how does this particular portion of Scripture apply to us? Well, the biggest thing I came up with is that we very simply need to have that kind of faith. Right? This is not a faith we muster. This goes back to us being empowered when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. But it doesn't change that we need that kind of boldness in our faith. And it's not that we seek to offend everyone we meet or we do our very best to get ourselves arrested. What it does mean is that we should be so bold in our faith that when the world and the culture around us tell us to stop talking about Jesus, we will do it anyway, no matter what the consequences are. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles are arrested. They are beaten. They are threatened because they continued to pe preach Jesus 
after they were arrested and beaten and threatened in Acts chapter 4. So they arrested him in Acts chapter 4. Don't do this. They went and did it anyway. They arrested him again. Didn't we tell you not to do this? Their response in Acts chapter 5, verse 32, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to or must, must obey God rather than men. Romans 13 tells us to be subject to governing authorities. I know. I, when I preached that sermon, it wasn't popular. I'm not going to do it again. But, well, I will eventually, just not right now. We are to submit to our governing authorities. The Bible tells us to do so. But there will be a time, and there have been times, and there will be more times when the governing authority tells us to disobey God. And at that point, we can say, Acts 5.32, we must obey God rather than men. When they left after being beaten and threatened some more in verses 41 and 42. It says, so they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So now they've been arrested twice, beaten twice, threatened twice, and their response is they rejoice in being worthy of suffering for Jesus' name. That's awesome faith. And then, and I love this part, daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. John was arrested and told to shut up and he kept preaching until he died. The, the apostles were arrested, beaten, threatened twice. And they said, no, this is what God has told us to do. We're going to continue doing it. This is the type of faith that we're called to. This is what following Jesus is supposed to look like. Now, in our country, in the good old U.S. of A., um, being arrested and physically attacked for our faith is not common. It does happen. It's just not as common. In other countries, it's very common. But we are called to surrender to him, to follow him, to share Jesus with those around us, even when the outcome won't be favorable to us. And I'm not telling you to become a street, street preacher. I never will. I'm not telling you to get your box and your megaphone and go stand on the corner of Virginia and, and Main Street and yell at everybody who goes by um, because, well, people just don't usually respond to that. What I am telling you is to love the people around you and to be bold in sharing your faith that we should never back down. And by the grace and power of God's spirit, we won't, no matter what we face. As we close, last week we looked at the progression of John's ministry. As he was alone with God in the Aramos, or the wilderness, he received the word of God, and then he walked out his God-given purpose. Today, that continued as the people were in expectation, but in his humility, John once again pointed them to Jesus. And then John's integrity and boldness were on full display as he openly rebuked one of, if not the most powerful person in Judea at the time. And they did not have the First Amendment. Their free speech was not protected. If you spoke against Rome, 
or a Roman official, you knew what was coming, and he did it anyway. All of this gives us the example of how we can be bold or how we need to be bold in our faith. So let's take it home. There may be someone listening who has never responded to the ministry of the Holy Spirit bringing you to salvation. He has come alongside you. He is with you. He wants to bring you to Jesus, but maybe up to this point, you have been resisting. It's time to stop resisting. It's time to receive the free gift of eternal life offered to you in Jesus our Lord. And if there's anybody here listening, if there's anybody who hears this recording, or anybody who's joined us on Facebook, if that's you, let us know. Let us pray with you. Let us introduce you to the only one who can save you, and once you receive him, we will take you out in the snow and dunk you. All right, we'll see if the heater works, but you get the picture. Next, perhaps you are saved, but some of these issues regarding baptism you may not be sure about, or maybe you haven't settled them yet. Maybe you want to know if you should be baptized in water. Maybe you want the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but you're not sure if you've had it or how to go about getting it. Maybe um, me saying the word baptism over and over again is just annoying and confusing you, um, and you want me to stop, but you'll have questions that we can clarify. Whatever the case, pray about it. Search the scriptures we've looked at today. Come and talk to me or one of our elders, and let us help you work through these matters. Finally, where is God calling you to be more bold in your faith? Now, Microsoft Word hated more bold. It wanted me to say bolder, but that just sounded weird. Where is God calling you to have more boldness in your faith? Is it with someone he wants you to share the gospel with or invite to church? Is it speaking up against something you know is wrong? Or perhaps the converse. Maybe God's calling you to take a stand for something you know is right. What is it for you? I don't know. I know what it is for me. And if you don't know, I encourage you to seek the Lord in his word, to seek him in prayer, and to ask him to show you. And then ask him to give you the strength and grace to be bold that let's pray let's lord we love you and remember father in the book of acts in chapter four after they were arrested and threatened father that they prayed for boldness and they prayed for your spirit to help them to be obedient to you in preaching the gospel and while we may not have an earthquake this morning although it would be very very cool I pray for the same boldness. Lord, we live in, in an area, in a culture that is very resistant to Jesus. And, and I pray that you would give us the boldness in love to share the gospel with those around us. I pray, Father, that you would be with us as we move into this new week, that you would give us your grace and your strength and your love for anything and everything we might face. And that in all things, you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.